Well, let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. <clears throat> Let's hear God's word together. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that you are a peacemaker. Once we were estranged from you, we were your enemies, living in rebellion and incapable of returning to you. But Lord, through the shed blood of your son, Jesus, you have cleansed us of our sins and reconciled us to yourself. You have set aside the hostility, the judgment, the wrath that we deserve, and you have welcomed us as your children. And we praise and thank you, Father, for the grace that we've received. But as you are a peacemaker, so you have called us, Father, to live in unity, harmony, and peace with one another. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grant Christ Bible Church to be a community marked by a deep love for one another, a deep unity, and a deep peace. If there are today ruptured relationships in our midst, we pray that your word and spirit would bring conviction and repentance. We pray that you would restore what is broken and that we would live in peace and harmony with one another. Heavenly Father, you have called us to be a praying community. And we know that corporately and individually, this is an area where we need to grow. And so we pray that your spirit would work in our midst to teach us to pray uh, more effectively, fervently, consistently than we are currently doing. Help us to grow in this area, Lord. Uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that our corporate life would not be stamped by the worldly and unbiblical assumptions that obtain in the world around us. We pray instead that we would relate to one another according to the blueprint of Scripture. Father, speak to us now through your word, and let your word bear fruit in our lives. For your glory and our good, we ask. Amen. So what was your initial reaction to the passage as I read it? Yes, that low groan, I think, captures it. Uh, I think you're, for many people, their first impression is that Scripture is really out of step with the modern world common first uh, response to this passage. A better first response, though, would have been to note the modern world is really out of step with Scripture. You see, it's not culture that stands in judgment on God's Word. It's not broad assumptions that obtain out there in the world that we bring to Scripture that stand in judgment on Scripture. It is the Word of God that stands in judgment on all things, including culture. It doesn't matter what everybody thinks and says. 
If God, God's word says differently, then they're all wrong. Uh, this is one of those passages in Scripture where the wisdom of the modern world and the wisdom of God are just on a collision course. There's a, a great deal of teaching here about the way that men, but especially women, should conduct themselves, especially in gathered worship in the church. And we'll consider three things more carefully this morning. Number one, men should pray without anger, verse 8. Number two, women should dress modestly. And number three, women should not rule over men in the church. Notice what Paul commands in verse 8. I desire then that in every place men should pray. In every place doesn't mean everywhere. It means in every uh, uh, Christian assembly where Christians are gathered together to worship God. In those places, I desire that men, men are singled out here, but of course men and women, uh, when we gather, pray together. Uh, and the idea is, as Randy underscored last week, that the church is to be a praying assembly, a praying people. When we pray as God's people, uh, we are not hitting the pause button on our primary responsibility to do something of lesser significance. Prayer is at the heart of our responsibility as God's people. We are meant to be a praying community. And a church that, that prays together consistently and faithfully is a powerful tool in God's hands for accomplishing great things in the world. And then Paul goes on to instruct us how we should pray. We should pray lifting holy hands, hands undefiled by disobedience, holy hands without anger or quarreling. If we are to pray the way God would have us pray, we need to put aside anger, bitterness, resentment, smoldering frustrations with one another. Uh, wherever there are divisions and ruptured relationships, the praying ministry of the church will be diminished and weakened. As God's people, we are called to pray in the context of harmonious relationships and love for one another. The implication of this passage is that if there is quarreling and fighting and frustration and hatred and bitterness and a lack of forgiveness, if relationships are ruptured all over the place and there's division in the body, we won't be able to pray the way that we should. It's an impediment to faithful worship and praying. The, the corporate spiritual temperature, if I can put it this way, goes down when there are broken relationships. Your lack of forgiveness or willingness to own up to the things that you've done doesn't just hurt you and your relationship with the other person, it brings that down the spiritual temperature of the church. It's like tossing a piece of ice in a hot tea. Temperature goes down. Fighting, quarreling, anger, uh, these things disrupt our worship and prayer to God. And so when we gather week by week to worship God as his redeemed people, we need to examine our hearts and we need to ask, is there, am I harboring hatred, anger, resentment toward a brother or sister especially? Is there the, the kind of anger and quarreling that Paul describes here in my heart? And if so, I need to repent or perhaps ask for forgiveness. We recognize that this kind of fighting hinders our ability to worship God together and pray together. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5, 23 through 24, if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're about to worship God, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. In other words, don't follow through on the worship act. 
Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you're going to church and you know that there's conflict between you and a believer, a brother or sister, address that conflict before you lift up your hands in worship, before we lift up our voices in corporate prayer. And by the way, what is true for us corporately is also true individually. If there is hatred, resentment, malice in your heart, it will impede your personal prayers. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. If you're in conflict with your wife, if that relationship is broken, don't be surprised that your prayer life is barren. It's not as effective and fruitful as it once was. And that's true not just in terms of relationships between husbands and wives, but all relationships. If we have resentment, bitterness in our heart, it will seep into our prayer life. How can it not? How can we come before the Lord and plead with him when our heart refuses to submit to his command that we forgive one another as we have been forgiven in Christ. So what are some common causes of anger and fighting in the church? I'll give you two broad sources of anger and quarreling among God's people. The first one's straightforward. Someone has wronged you. They've spoken disrespectfully. They've done something. They've ignored you. And instead of forgiving them, what do you do? You seethe, you smolder, and that resentment just builds. Most of the time when someone wrongs us, we simply just need to forgive them in the presence of God and move on. We remember that God has forgiven us again and again and again. And we, in our own small way, need to reflect the grace of God by forgiving those who forgive us. Sometimes the magnitude of the sin is greater, and so we need to confront our brother and sister and work through it through a conversation and deal with it that way. And sometimes we're the guilty party. We wrong others, and when that happens, and we are aware of it having happened, we need to take initiative to own our sin and ask for forgiveness. So anger, anger grows, develops, explodes where there is a lack of forgiveness. But another common cause of anger, of frustration, of resentment, is when the church refuses to align with my sincerely held convictions. You go to the leadership of the church and you explain what you think the right way is to do something, uh, but the church leadership says, thank you, but we don't agree. It refuses to bring its practice and its doctrine into alignment with what you think is best. And in that situation, having done all that you can, having talked to your leaders and tried to persuade them, they don't, you haven't persuaded them, there are basically two biblical options that you have at that point. Number one is cheerfully submit. There's no perfect church. There's always going to be some fault you can find. Um, but this is the church I love. This, these are the people I love. Uh, from the heart, I submit to it, even as I think this could be improved. Right? That's option one, biblical. Cheerfully submit. Even, in fact, you only need to submit when you don't agree. Right? Like that's, that's when your submission is really tested. Cheerfully submit, option one. Option two, if the difference is significant enough, peacefully leave. Peacefully leave. Now, you should be very careful about leaving your local church. You need to make sure there are good reasons for this. But at some point, if there is such a massive discrepancy between the church's practice and doctrine and your own sincerely held convictions, sometimes the best thing is simply to find another local church that, that shares your convictions. Again, we want to be very careful when we do that. We want to make sure that it's not just pride and stubbornness masquerading as principle. That sometimes happens. 
It's not so much that God's word is being disobeyed. It's that I'm not being listened to. And I can find all kinds of theological principles to justify that arrogance. But really, it's about me and not being heard. We want to be careful that we don't deceive ourselves. But sometimes, uh, in, in significant instances of drastic discrepancy between the church and my own convictions, the best thing might be to leave peacefully. So those are basically your options. But the temptation is actually to do something other than either of these things. The church hasn't listened. They're not adopting what I think is the best practice in a certain area. And so, I, and so my um, dissatisfaction with the church begins to bleed into a frustration, bitterness, and resentment. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? If you've been a Christian for a period of time, uh, you know what happens when the church just isn't doing the thing that you think needs to be done. And so you're no longer simply dissatisfied. There's a mounting, seething frustration. And oftentimes you leave church almost worse off than when you came. There's this blackness, this bile in your soul, right? You're filled with anger and frustration. You can't live there. If that's where you are, repent of that. God has called you to peace, not to anger, to peace, not to quarreling. It's only a matter of time if you live in that spiritual condition until that thing explodes and it gets everywhere. So the call there would be to repent. Uh, the call to us this morning is to guard our hearts. When we gather with God's people, we want to make sure there's no resentment or hostility towards others. We want to love our brothers and sisters. We want to forgive them and seek forgiveness. And that's how we can worship and pray together as a community. A peace promotes prayer. Peace among God's people promotes prayer. Okay, number two. You move from the men, perhaps prone to anger and quarreling. And then Paul has some uh, commands for the women. And he first talks about how women should dress, how women should dress. Uh, he notes that they should be modest. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Modesty simply means that you cover your more intimate parts. Uh, you don't flaunt them. You don't seek to allure. Uh, Nancy DeMoss says that a modest woman avoids, quote, exposing intimate parts of the body and emphasizing private or alluring parts of the body. Now, Paul doesn't give you precise measurements. Notice, 10 inches, 4 inches, this tight, not this tight. Uh, he gives you a principle, and he says, use wisdom, use discernment to understand what is fitting for a Christian woman to wear. And I think Christian women can dress immodestly for one of two reasons. One is by dressing immodestly, they intend to encourage lustful looks, which would be an expression of sexual impurity, and the response there is to cleanse your heart and repent of impurity. It's an ungodly desire. But another reason they might dress immodestly is not because they're trying to encourage lustful looks, but because they want to dress the way the other women in the culture dress. Often what is normal and acceptable in our culture is not acceptable by biblical standards. Something can be perfectly acceptable in the, broad, in the surrounding world, uh, perfectly normal for a woman to wear, and it can still be immodest. I think that often women are, are put in this bind where I don't want to be completely different from the women around me. Uh, I want to dress like everybody else. I don't want to stick out. But recognize that a lot of what passes for legitimate fashion in the world is illegitimate by biblical standards because it is immodest. Our culture is collapsing around us. There's a lot of moral confusion. 
Don't follow the culture's lead in the way that you dress. So dress modestly because God wants you to. But dress modestly also as an act of love and kindness to your brothers in Christ, particularly when we gather to worship Jesus. Remember, the, the, the context here is gathered worship. When you come, be mindful of their struggles. Help them by dressing decently so that their focus can be on Jesus Christ and they can worship him with purity of heart. It's another reason to dress modestly. And then Paul goes from mo- modesty in that, in that sense of covering up Women are to dress modestly with self-control. And then he focuses, he defines modesty more narrowly as avoiding excessively showy, flashy, gaudy, overly expensive forms of adornment. That's another form of immodesty. He says uh, that women ought to adorn themselves not with braided hair and gold or pearls or with costly attire. They shouldn't be extravagant in the way that they beautify themselves. What should they do? They should care about beauty, but they should care about inner beauty. They should adorn themselves, verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Care about beauty, but care about the right kind of beauty, Paul says. Not this, but this. Now, first thing to note here is that this is not an absolute prohibition against jewelry. Paul is not saying that all forms of jewelry and makeup and and dressing up are sinful. One of the reasons we know this is just the broader testimony of Scripture. Uh, Done rightly, there is a place for jewelry and adornments. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 10. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Um, Husband complimenting his wife. Good thing. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes with one jewel of your necklace, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 9. The Bible's posture is not, there there, there should be no jewelry, there should be no adornment. What seems to be in view here is excess, excessive adornment, excessively expensive adornment, flashy adornment. Uh, Look at the language he uses, gold, pearls, costly attire. In fact, it's possible to take the reference to braided hair, not as a standalone thing, but as further modified by golden pearls. In other words, Paul is saying, not with braided hair that is embedded with gold and pearls, as well as costly attire. This was a thing in the ancient world. Women would embed uh, precious metals, things like gold and pearls, into their hair, and it would be this big nest on their head. And that may well be what Paul has in view. Here's how one commentator describes it, James Hurley. Paul refers to the elaborate hairstyles which were then fashionable among the wealthy, and also to the styles worn by courtesans, escorts. The sculpture and literature of the period make it clear that women often wore their hair in enormously elaborate arrangement with braids and curls interwoven or piled high like towers and decorated with gems and or gold and or pearls. Courtesans wore their hair in numerous small pendant braids with gold droplets or pearls or gems every inch or so making a shimmering screen of their locks. It have been interesting to behold, right? The light catches all of these beads. Her head would you know, be set aflame with, with light. Must, must have been a thing to behold. Now, I suspect that it's that kind of over-the-top, overly expensive, overly flashy dress that is in view. And Paul is saying to Christian women, you should not dress that way. You know, you shouldn't be a peacock among p- pigeons, if I can 
put it that way, right? You shouldn't be flashy and stand out is the idea. Now, the question is, where's the line? How expensive is too expensive? Uh, how ornate is too ornate? And again, isn't it interesting that Paul, the Apostle Paul doesn't, that's not where the emphasis falls. He doesn't give us detailed diagrams of what is appropriate for a Christian woman. What's important for Paul is not so much the line is here or not here. What's important for Paul is her heart or her priority. Don't adorn yourself, he says, with braids and gold and pearls. Adorn yourself, make yourself beautiful with holy living, with good works. Women should care about beauty, but supremely they should care about having, reflecting the beautiful character of Jesus Christ, adorning themselves with good works, with obedience. That's the kind of beauty they should care about. And so really the question for Paul is not, is this particular item of clothing legitimate or not? It's really a more fundamental question. As a woman, what are you driven by? What kind of beauty are you fundamentally pursuing? The beauty of submission to Jesus and serving him and advancing the kingdom or external beauty? If your heart beats for Jesus Christ and a desire to serve him and see his purposes advancing, you're going to dress the right way. It's more fundamentally a matter of the heart than it is specific guidelines. Paul very helpfully in 1 Timothy 5.10 where he describes uh, the conduct of uh, widows, their good works, he, he gives us a sense of the kind of good works the, that he has in view when he says women should adorn themselves with good works. He says, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, which is an expression of hospitality, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. This is the kind of life a Christian woman should live, a life of service, a life of blessing other people. That should be where her heart is. And if that's how she's living, the other stuff will fall into place. Uh, that's Paul's admonition to us. Not dressed this way, that way specifically, but where's your heart? What do you care about? What's your priority? Now, the question emerges again, how can I know that my priorities are correct? How do I know that I'm not too in love with external appearance? and I'm pursuing the right things. Well, one indication is how much money do you spend on beauty products? Carolyn Mahaney and Nicole Whitaker in a book called True Beauty note, according to some figures, the average American woman spends a staggering 12,000 to 15,000 per year on beauty products and services. It's nearly a mortgage. Maybe a few years ago, nearly a mortgage. Right, where does your money go? What does your wallet say about your priorities? How much money do you spend on your looks? How much time do you spend on your looks? Again, Mahaney and Whitaker note, the typical woman spends more than a year of her life, 474 days on average, putting on cosmetics. More than a year of her life. That works out to one week per year and does not count the additional 52 days of our lives we spend removing said makeup. A lot of money. A lot of time spent in front of the mirror. Uh, another indication is what do other people say? Those who are connected to you and have a closer relationship, have they corrected you? Have they drawn your attention to the fact that you might be too image obsessed? Where does your mind go? Like what drives you? What gets you excited? How you can get a nicer dress or a nice necklace? Or, or is your focus in life honoring Jesus, serving him and the people around you? Paul's admonition to Christian women is dressed modestly decently with self-control, but also avoid excessively expensive and showy forms of dress. 
Then he moves on from clothes to the conduct of women in gathered worship. Remember, the context here seems to be uh, the gathering of God's people. And in verse 11, he says, let a woman learn quietly. Now, that word quietly can refer literally to silence, or it can refer to a quiet demeanor, a submissive, gentle, respectful posture or attitude. And it's frequently used that way in the New Testament. We see this, for example, if you look just a few verses earlier, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 2, he speaks of Christians leading a quiet life. This doesn't mean we take a vow of silence and never say anything. It's a posture. It's a demeanor. And uh, similarly, it can and probably should be interpreted that way in this context. Women are called to learn with a quiet demeanor. We know that this is not a call to absolute silence, uh, for example, because of 1 Corinthians 11.5, where women are described as praying in the context of gathered worship. So that word, that, that quiet spirit, pairs with submissiveness. Women should learn quietly with all submissiveness. The word translated submissive means recognizing legitimate authority and obeying those authorities in your life. Well, the question is, to whom is the Christian woman submitting or Christian women submitting? Uh, it's not, Paul is not saying here that every Christian woman has a responsibility to submit to every guy. Not what he's saying. Uh, submission needs to be constrained or limited by the context. And the context suggests that it is a submission or obedience to the authority of the church, to the elders or the overseers or the pastors. Those are three words the New Testament uses for the same office. And Paul goes on in the very next section to describe the qualifications for that office. It is especially a submission to the pastors and leaders of the church, to their broader authority and also their teaching ministry. And in that way, that call to submission is not any different from the call that all men and women have to submit to their spiritual authorities in their local congregation. Uh, perhaps Paul emphasizes it because, remember, lurking in the background of this letter is some sort of nefarious false teaching that Timothy has to contend against. And that false teaching seems to be assaulting the creation order, the God's design for men and women. For example, if you read 4 carefully, chapter 4, it talks about how these false teachers are encouraging people not to marry. And perhaps they're also encouraging women not to act like women, to be more aggressive and disruptive in the worship service, hence Paul's special emphasis in verse 11. But he goes on to describe further what is involved in the submissiveness, and he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Again, this is not an absolute statement that women can't teach anywhere ever. We see plenty of examples in Scripture of women doing just that. For example, we see Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife team, correcting the learned and the eloquent Apollos, a distinguished preacher, a preacher in the early Christian community. And Priscilla and Aquila discreetly take him aside and correct him because there are certain points of doctrine where he's mistaken. Acts 18.26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So there is this discreet correction by a husband and a wife. Timothy appears to have been taught uh, the faith by his mom and uh, grandmother. We, we see this in 2 Timothy. So there's a place for women to teach boys, uh, as well as girls, of course. Uh, Titus 2 speaks of older women teaching younger women. So there's a place for women to teach women. Right? Scripture doesn't say women can't teach anywhere ever. Again, the context has to limit what we understand Paul to be saying. Paul is specifically saying that a woman cannot teach 
a man, do you see the object exercise authority over a man? That object goes with teaching as well. Women shouldn't teach a man, especially in the context of gathered worship. Women should not be preachers. They should not authoritatively expound scripture in this context. Paul's very clear about that. Women are called to do many things, but the authoritative proclamation of the word in God's assembly is not one of the things that they're called. In addition to not teaching in this context, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. The idea here is simply that women ought not to have the same uh, functions as the elders, pastors, overseers in the church. God has called men to lead and protect the flock. He has called men to be pastors, and he has not called women to exercise that same authority. And so that's what Paul is getting at. Women should not aspire to be pastors, to have spiritual authority over the church. What this clearly teaches then is that God does not call women to be pastors. And where we see, as indeed we do see in many churches, women pastors, we understand that that is an act of disobedience to Scripture, and it's contrary to the will of God for the church, pure and simple. You often see uh, husband and wife pastors, not biblical. God wants his church to be led, to be directed by men. Uh, and we need to be very clear about this. When you're looking for a church, if you should be looking for a church, and you notice that there is a woman pastor, that should be an immediate red flag and a good reason to look elsewhere. It's a serious deviation from what God clearly teaches about the church and the way it ought to be organized. We need to understand that, strictly speaking, woman pastor is a contradiction in terms. Pastor is, by definition, a male office. God does not call women uh, to lead his church specifically in that capacity. Uh, we we want to be very clear about this. I, um, Randy told me on one occasion that he was taking his oral exam at seminary, which I guess is this, this final exercise that you have to do in front of the professors uh, to, to explain you know, what you believe about scripture and so on. And at the end of that theological oral exam, and you can talk to Randy if I get some of the details wrong, but at the end of that oral exam, uh, he was asked by a professor, let's say you go to a town and there are three churches you could possibly attend. A liberal Protestant church, you know, don't believe in miracles, deity of Jesus, that kind of church. A Catholic church, or an evangelical church, closer in doctrine, that has a woman pastor. Which of the three would you attend? And Randy wisely answered, none of them, I'd start my own. Uh, which I thought, <laughs> man, that was good. Uh, well done, brother. So, Scripture's clear. God's calling for leadership in the church is limited to men. Now, why is that? Sometimes the argument is made that this is simply restricted to Paul's cultural context. Uh, yes, Paul did limit women from being pastors but for cultural reasons in Ephesus in the first century, but that, these are not universally binding on the church at all times and places. In response to that, look at the way Paul reasons. Look at verse 13. When he gives a reason for the prohibition that he's just given in verse 12, when he gives you the reason for that prohibition, he doesn't appeal to some sort of cultural thing. He appeals to the created order. 
He appeals to the fact that there are fundamental differences between men and women instituted by God, and it is that created order that explains the prohibition with the implication that this is valid for God's people in all times and places. The first reason Paul gives then in verse 13 is Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is alluding to Genesis chapter 2 and the distinctive ways in which Adam was made and then Eve was made. And he sees in Genesis 2 an indication that while men and women are equal in value and dignity before God, they are gloriously and wonderfully different from each other. There is such a thing as masculinity. There is such a thing as femininity. These are hardwired into us by God, and they go all the way down. And instead of trying like our, our culture is doing to collapse these differences and create one nebulous gender, whatever it is, uh, we should rejoice in the fact that there is this difference that's given by God, but it does not imply for a moment that women are inferior to men or vice versa. All of us are made in the image of God, but we're different from one another. And that's actually a reason to praise God. That's something to revel in and rejoice in, not something to be embarrassed about. Now, when our culture hears, and it, it's precisely because of these God-given differences that there are differences in role. Because there is masculinity and femininity, there are differences in, of role in the church and in the home. But when our culture hears different roles, church uh, or in the home, they hear Different roles equals men are superior to women. But biblically speaking, that doesn't follow. We can say two things are different from each other without saying one is superior or inferior to the other. A flower is soft. A rock is hard. They're different, but that doesn't indicate that one is superior to the other. They are simply different. Saying that men and women are different and that they have different roles does not diminish the fact that they are equal in value and dignity before God. So that's Paul's first reason for saying to us, a woman shouldn't lead in the church because there is an order that God has established that is grounded in gender, and that order should be reflected in the home and in the leadership of the church. That's his first reason. His second reason, verse 14, first one is let's look at creation, see what we learn from it, but the second reason looks at the fall. Why should women not be pastors or leaders in the church? Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here Paul is simply reflecting what Eve herself says in Genesis 3.13. After she sins, she says to God, the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Eve recognizes that she was tricked into her disobedience. What does he mean when he says Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was? What, what he's saying is that in some ways, Eve didn't see as clearly. She was deceived about what she was doing, but Adam went into it wide-eyed. He saw more clearly than Eve what this transgression meant and still chose to do it. The first heresy, the first instance in Scripture of doctrinal deviation is in Genesis 3. When the serpent says to our first parents, did God really say? And contrary to God's word, he says, you shall not die if you eat of the tree. And in that moment of error, heresy, doctrinal deviation, it was Adam who saw more clearly what was going on than even Eve. And the idea is that because of these God-given differences between men and women, 
Men are better suited to the task of identifying doctrinal error and contending against it than women are. Now, this is not to say women are more gullible than men or lack wisdom and intelligence, nothing like that. But it is to say that especially in the work of discerning theological error and then confronting it the way it should be confronted, men are better equipped, more equipped by God because of these differences that he has established in us to engage in that kind of work. And of course, that kind of work is essential to the office of pastor. If you read Titus 1, uh, Paul says to Titus, make sure that you appoint elders who know the scriptures well. Why? So they can correct false teaching. So that they can engage in this kind of very specific uh, spiritual warfare where they contend against doctrinal error. That's Paul's reasoning. And he reasons from the fall and from creation to say that the office of pastor or elder should be limited to men. But what I want to make very clear is you can read this and it can sound like God through Paul is taking this good thing from women, teaching in the church and authority. Something that belongs to them, but God for whatever reason is not willing to give them this good thing. And that is exactly the wrong way to view this prohibition. One way to think about it is that every good prohibition is permission to be what God has created you to be. Every good prohibition is permission to be what God has made you to be. So for example, I've got uh, two sons, both young. If I say to one of my sons, I don't give you permission to work full time and support the family, what I'm actually saying is I'm giving you permission to be a child and not take on the responsibilities of adulthood. The prohibition, you can't, be, you can't support the family and do what an adult does, is actually just a way of saying, you're a kid, go ahead and be a kid. I'm not gonna put on you things that don't belong on your shoulders at this stage of life. Be what God has made you to be, a child. God says to a fish, you can't live on dry land, you need to live in the water. That's another way of saying, God is giving the fish permission to be a fish. Not taking anything from the fish, but saying, be what you were made to be. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here with women. He's not taking something that belongs to women. He's taking it away illegitimately. He is simply saying to women, be what God has made you to be, a woman. He's not called you to do the work of a man, to lead the church, to engage in these doctrinal controversies. Be a woman. Be feminine. Do what God has made you to do. And in this way, this prohibition is actually not a a way of restricting women, but a way of liberating them to be what God intends for them to be. The prohibition, thought of that way, uh, should be seen as liberating. Now, we get to verse 15. It's one of the more challenging verses in the section. So Adam, not deceived, Eve was deceived. But then having made that statement... Paul goes on and says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. What does that mean? Well, in my mind, I've boiled it down to two options, one of which I think is the more probable. The first option, is slightly less probable, is that the she in view in verse 15 is women generally. It's singular, but it stands for all women. And the idea here is that a woman will be spiritually safe 
Her salvation will be safeguarded if she persists in childbearing. And childbearing here is not just childbearing by itself, but childbearing as shorthand for all that is distinctive to women. In other words, if women do what God has called them to do and walk in the path of faithfulness, that's spiritually safe for them. If they persevere in their God-given calling as women, they're spiritually safe and they'll be saved in that sense. Not, not that childbearing saves you in the sense that it earns God's favor. Jesus saves us, praise God. He died and rose again. There's salvation in his name. But the idea may be preserved spiritually. And there's actually contextually reasons for taking it that way. Uh, for example, in chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, verses 14 through 15, Paul writes uh, to younger widows especially, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. In other words, these young widows, by neglecting their responsibilities, were being spiritually harmed. So the safest thing for them to do was to, to do the work that God had called them to do, to have children and manage their household and do these kinds of things, and that is a spiritual protection for them. That could be the meaning. There's contextual reasons for it. However, I find a, a second reading of this passage more compelling, although I think you could make the case, as I will, that it overlaps somewhat with the first. Verse 15, who is the most immediate she prior to the, to the word she in verse 15? Who has just been mentioned? Eve. Is the, is the she in context. So what does it mean to say that Eve will be saved through childbearing? Well, think about the first announcement of the gospel in Scripture. God tells Adam and Eve, after they've sinned, that there will arise the seed of a woman through whom the head of the serpent will be crushed. A Savior will come through Eve. As she bears children, she will, in the long run, give birth to a Savior. And so salvation comes to the world, it comes to Eve, it comes to women, and it comes to men, because Eve engaged in childbearing. From her, the seed of the woman came into the world who crushed the head of the serpent. And this fits nicely into the context, doesn't it? Paul has just spoken about Eve and how she was deceived, but then he adds a qualifier Yes, she did that, but she's also our mother, and she's also the mother of the Savior. And through the work of bearing children, she brings salvation to the world. She gives a gift, as it were, to all of us by doing the work of a woman. And I think here Eve is at the forefront, but a representative of women generally. Because you'll notice you go from singular at the beginning of the sentence, she, to plural they at the end of the verse. And so the idea seems to be, look at Eve and how through childbearing she has brought salvation to the world, and that is an incentive to all women not to repudiate their femininity, not to turn away from their responsibilities as wives and mothers, but to embrace them. It is by being obedient to her calling as a woman that Eve brings salvation to the world, and it is as these women in Ephesus are faithful wives and mothers that they will, they, they will bring blessing to others and will please God. I'm not suggesting that all Christian women will marry. 1 Corinthians 7 clearly indicates that you can be a faithful woman of God who's devoted to Jesus and not be married. But generally speaking, 
women will marry, and Paul is giving women permission to be women. He's doing the opposite of what our culture is doing. Don't stay home with the kids. Don't drive them to soccer practice in the minivan. If you want to be a real, real woman, turn your back on the work of childbearing, raising kids, managing a household. That's very lowering work, so says the perspective of our culture. If you want to be a real woman, go out there and conquer the corporate world. Be ambitious, aggressive. I was in a Barnes & Noble however long ago, and I saw a book with a, a young woman, young girl, and she had this kind of like tough look, very stern look to intimidate the reader. Um, and, and it said something like, strong is the new beautiful, which is like another way of saying masculine is the new feminine. In other words, like the, the ideal that the culture holds out to, to you ladies is you can be a man, right? Wouldn't it be great if you were aggressive and assertive and did all the things that men do? In other words, don't be, what a, don't be feminine, don't be what God has made you to do, be like this, which is an unnatural, immoral way of thinking about things. Paul is saying the reverse. If you're a woman, glory in your femininity. It is good to have children, have lots of children. Raise them in the fear of the Lord. Manage your household. You're not living a second-class life, ladies. You're living life to the glory of God. You are a blessing to your community. You are a blessing to these children that you're discipling. Don't listen to the foolishness in the world out there. God gives you permission to be a woman and to do the work of a woman, and you should do it without shame, without any, any sense of needing to explain yourself to people who don't share the Bible's vision of femininity. So rather than viewing this verse as an oppressive, restrictive thing, God taking what belongs to you, Paul is actually saying, no, be what God has made you to be. Do the work of being a mother, whatever God has called you to. Do it with joy and freedom. That's not a second-class life. Put those kids in the minivan, drive them to soccer, and let your heart soar with joy for the glory of God, right? The passage then calls all of us, but singles out men, when we gather, brothers and sisters, especially brothers, let's purify our hearts, let's forgive each other, let's get rid of those long-standing resentments and frustrations with each other. Let's forgive and move forward so we can pray as a community. And then Paul turns his attention to women, he says, ladies, don't follow the, the, the frivolous way of clothing yourselves that you see out there. Clothe yourselves with modesty, not too flashy, focus on inner beauty. Young men, take note. When you're looking for a wife, what should you look for? Not in the first instance, external beauty. There's a place for that, of course. But in the first instance, wisdom, prudence, and a beautiful character. This is the woman you're going to be in the trenches with, right? Beauty fades, but you'll need prudence when you've got to raise kids and make money and do all the things that life demands of you. Look for a beautiful character. Give more weight to that. And finally, Men and women are not interchangeable. There's a beauty to masculinity and a beauty to femininity, and God's good design for the sexes should be reflected in the leadership of the church. This brings glory to God and blessing to us. And may God give us grace more and more to live out the pattern that we see in this passage. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word to guide us because we live in a dark world that sends us mixed signals confuses us, misdirects us. Uh, we thank you for the light of your word, and we pray, Jesus, we are not strong in ourselves, but we pray for the power of your spirit to live out what we've read here. Help us to forgive each other, to love each other, to be forbearing with one another. Uh, give us grace, Lord, to be the people you've called us to be. Amen.